You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. It's, it's a real honor today to be asked to speak on uh, science and faith, two issues very close to my own heart, um, both within the church and within secular society. Uh, many see science and faith as um, at, at war, at loggerheads, essentially competing for leadership in society. Uh, yet others see science and faith as complete, completely separate entities. They just think, you know, well, science is boring, didn't like that at school, doesn't need to intersect with my experience uh, of life. So if you haven't come across the tension between science and faith in your lives, let me share with you um, the response of my work friends on asking them, would they come here to listen to me give a talk in church on science and faith? They said, what? You give me a talk in church on science? You've got to be joking. We'll have the getaway car ready. I thought I was quite funny. <laughs> anyway, it serves to illustrate the fact that there is uh, it, there's a tension between science and faith viewed by many. In, in secular society. So both points of view, either side of the discourse between science and faith, seemingly agree over one truism. And this truism is that science and faith cannot mutually coexist. If you believe in one, you cannot believe in the other. Okay, they're mutually exclusive. So on the one hand, we have um, Christians who claim that if you want to hold to a high, if you hold to a high view of the authority of the Bible, you cannot believe in certain scientific theories. Uh, On the other hand, we have um, the albeit rather extreme views of the new atheist movement, Uh, the Four Horsemen, the likes of Richard Dawkins, Samuel Harris, uh, the late Christopher Hitchens, and Daniel Dennett, who collectively have been very effective at um, essentially viewing or painting the idea that faith is a blind belief uh, without any irrational or any rational reason, and it needs to be eradicated. It is a disease. So this tension creates problems for uh, Christians and skeptics alike. So in light of the the recent phenomenal developments in both technology and scientific understanding of the world around us within Western culture over the last hundred years or so, uh, Christians ask, how can I reconcile what the Bible is telling me about the world around us with what, um, with what science says. So on the other hand, we have skeptics looking in at the Christian faith who are asking, do I really have to reject science and rational thought to take on faith? So this is an issue that I've, I've wrestled with a little bit uh, throughout my training and throughout my work as, as a geologist that Will mentioned. So before we get into the meat uh, of the talk, a little bit about me. I'm not from Texas, you probably worked out. Uh, I come from East Texas, apparently, I've, I've heard that, so England. <laughs> so I, I grew up in the north of England, um, and uh, I fell in love with the outdoors at a very early age. So it was copious amounts of uh, sport, a lot of football, or as you guys call it, soccer, running over mountain belts and things like that, lots of sailing, lots of time spent in the outdoors. So this coupled with a natural sense of curiosity I had about how and why the earth is as it is led me to uh, uh, study geology at Oxford uh, for my undergrad. So at Oxford, I fell in love with rocks. It's pretty sad, but I did. <laughs> sorry, sorry, dear. Um, so God gave me, I mean, seriously, God gave me a, a really profound sense of interest in geology and what we can uh, learn from the way in which the earth 
works through geology. Uh, this led me to uh, pursue a PhD at Cambridge, where I studied in particular uh, how the Alps were formed. So what we can glean from the surface manifestation, the topography of mountain belt, uh, about the processes that are going on deep within the Earth. So moving from Oxford to Cambridge is pretty much like moving from UT to Oklahoma. It's, it's an interesting experience. Um, so shortly after my PhD, I worked for a year in a laboratory uh, specializing in age dating techniques, using huge machines, so roughly half the size of this, this church. It's it great fun. And this has led to the work that I'm doing here at UT as a postdoctoral research fellow. Um, so I develop and use methods for the application of a technique called thermochronology. Now, as the name suggests, it's the study of temperature uh, and time throughout Earth history. Okay? So we use these big machines to actually make some incredible measurements. And it really reveals to me both the beauty and innate consistency of science in the world around us. Um, take, for example, I make measurements of uh, the decay products of radiogenic nuclides like uranium. So I measure lead, the concentration of lead, in tiny crystals. These crystals are less than the diameter of a, um, a human hair. So we're on micron levels, okay? And I can make measurements to within 0.1% and precision. So we can make very, very accurate and precise measurements on such small amounts of uh, material. So that's basically 0.1% precision is about the same as uh, knowing your weight in pounds to 0.1 pounds. So it's, re it's really quite cool. And from these measurements, I can glean uh, whereabouts, or the pressures at which this mineral formed, the temperatures at which it formed. And if we do that over lots of different uh, mountain belts in the Earth, we can actually build up a very coherent picture of what the Earth's crust has done uh, throughout history. It's, it's really cool. So throughout my training and work, I'm often asked questions uh, such as, hey, Andy, how can you be a geologist and believe in all that Bible stuff? How can you be a Christian? I mean, it's so countercultural in today's sceptical society to hold an active faith uh, with active, actively pursuing a scientific career. I mean, is, is this right? So today, I'd like to get us thinking about how faith and science interact with one another uh, and why their relationship is important. Uh, I'm going to talk about, a little bit about what science and faith are and what science and faith, importantly, what they're not. Uh, I'm going to do this by challenging some uh, commonly aired assumptions uh, that seem to dominate the media and the discussion and discourse around science and faith. So alternative to the loud voices that seem to argue uh, that biblical orthodoxy and an appreciation for science are mutually exclusive, uh, what I'd like to do is suggest that there's another option, that there is an intimate coherence between the two, uh, between what science tells us about creation and what the Bible teaches us, and that not only are the two compat are compatible, but they are complementary ways of looking at the world around us. So to show you how science and faith are, and the Christian faith are complementary, uh, I want to address two popular assumptions. Firstly, the assumption that science sees all, and secondly, the assumption that faith is blind. So let's start with the idea that science sees all. Uh, in our culture, there seems to be uh, an unspoken assumption uh, that modern science can explain, explain everything, and therefore naturally leads us towards an atheistic viewpoint. Uh, this is certainly the case for the likes of uh, Richard Dawkins. Uh, he's very well known. He's an emeritus professor of um, biology at the University of Oxford. He's, written some he's an excellent scientist, really excellent scientist. 
Anyway, Dawkins is quoted as saying, science offers us an explanation of how complexity, the difficult, arose out of simplicity, the easy. The hypothesis of God offers no worthwhile explanation for anything, for it simply postulates what we are trying to explain. So statements like this really drive a wedge between science and faith. Uh, They claim that science is the pursuit of truth, and essentially painting the pursuit of religious truth is completely obsolete. Um, Statements like this and proponents of this view claim that science defines the valid uh, questions to ask, uh, and that because it's not testable in terms of scientific theory, religious religious belief is not a valid line of inquiry. Now, this is clearly popular. Um, a poll of the National Academy of Sciences or Sciences here in the States. Now, the National Academy of Sciences is essentially America's top accolade for science. You know you've really made it if you make it in there. Um, so a poll showed that less than 7, 7% of its members uh, claim to believe in a personal God. That's pretty startling. Now, particularly, it's particularly surprising given the fact that our current understanding of the universe around us in scientific theory. It's largely based on um, findings made by God-fearing believers. The early Christian scientists, early scientists were Christians. So one of the best examples of this is, is Galileo. You've all heard of him. He was um, alive in the 16th and 17th centuries. He was an Italian. And he's best known, at, well, he, he's actually branded now as the father of modern science. He's best known uh, for his work on the telescope, the development of observational astronomy, and perhaps most famously, his support for the theory of heliocentrism. So now we we all take it as read that the Earth orbits the sun, but at that time, this was hugely countercultural. Okay, so Galileo was one of the main proponents of this view. It actually his support for this theory actually led to him being deemed a heretic and spending most of his life under house arrest. I I can only say that I'm pretty chuffed that uh, there's less pressure in the system nowadays. (laughs) So other examples of influential uh, Christian scientists include Johannes Kepler, uh, who who developed the theory of Kepler's laws of planetary motion to describe the planets and how they they move relative to one another. And a little bit more recently, Max Planck, uh, a physicist, uh, a Nobel Prize winning physicist. He got the Nobel Prize uh, in the early 1900s for his work on the development of the theory of quantum mechanics, which is hugely powerful. So, so what's happened to cause a rift between science and faith? Uh, why has science been claimed by those who believe that it answers everything? In part, I think the, the encroachment of science into the realm of faith is due to its recent successes. I mean, just think, over the past hundred years, uh, we've witnessed an absolutely incredible spurt in the development not only of scientific theory, but technology as well. Uh, So in other words, the amount of progress we have made in the sciences gives us the sense that science does in fact see all, and if it doesn't now, it eventually will see all. So let me give you just one example of a recent success, or relatively recent success, in science and explain the world around us. I'm a geologist. Um, Back in 1963, two British geologists... Uh, Fred Vine and Drum Matthews made an absolutely critical observation. They were marine geologists, so they were studying the rocks beneath the, ocean, the oceans, and specifically they were studying the, um, the Pacific Oceanic Crust. And what they noted was that the pattern 
of the mag- magnetism in these rocks. Actually, it was like zebra-like stripes. It was alternating in direction, okay? So what they did is they put two and two together. There was a lot of evidence around in the 60s to suggest that the continents had actually been moving throughout geological history. And they put two and two together, these zebra-like stripes, to suggest that the oceans were actually moving laterally and growing and actually recording the, um, the ambient sense of the Earth's uh, magnetic field at the time in which these rocks cooled. Now, this is absolutely critical because it tied together not only the evidence of the continents moving, but the growth of the oceanic crust. And this observation essentially underpins our understanding of plate tectonics as we know it. And now you might think, well, you know, plate tectonics, who cares? But actually, it's really important. It helps us to predict not only the tectonics on our planet, but a lot of the other planets in the solar system. It helps us to predict and understand societally relevant phenomena such as earthquakes or volcanoes. It's very powerful. Findings like this seem to say that out of um, a complex or an apparently complex series of observations, uh, science has always been able to or is able to provide a rigorous description of the emergent order. Let me say that again because I think it's quite important. So science actually says that out of an apparently complex series of observations, science has been able to provide a rigorous description of the emergent order. So in light of these recent successes it's perhaps um, plausible to identify with the the thought that science can explain away all the mysteries of our experience or our existence. However, this is really important. Science in itself does not demand an atheistic viewpoint. Despite what we hear in the media, uh, this is a result of a presupposed intellectual link between science and atheism. And it's largely inserted by the proponents of the new type of atheism, as we've already mentioned. Instead, we need to recognize that science and faith fundamentally address different types of questions in their very nature. Um, It's useful to see science addressing the how things are or how things came to be, while faith delves into the questions of why. So science is the mechanism and faith is the meaning. So John, John Polkinghorne, some of you may have heard of him, He's an English, uh, he's an emeritus professor of mathematical physics at the University of Cambridge in the UK. Uh, And he's also an ordained Anglican minister and has been very influential in the discourse between science and faith. Uh, John Polkinghorne says that how and why are questions that may be asked simultaneously of what is happening. And often both must be addressed if an adequate understanding is to be attained. So Polkinghorne uses a really excellently British example or illustration to, to show this. He uses a tea kettle. So when, when, we, when you boil a, a kettle of water to make a cup of tea, the kettle is boiling because there's a filament that's been heated by electricity. This imparts kinetic energy to the uh, water molecules which boil, steams. You pour your boiling water into the cup you have for the tea bag there and you wait for a while you have a cup of tea, okay? But it's also... Uh, you, the kettle is also boiling because someone wants to make a pot of tea. So it's, it seems a little bit uh, nonsensical, but it's a critical distinction. To fully understand the boiling kettle, we can incorporate the understanding of how it's happening and the intent of the being making it happen as the how and the why, the mechanism and the meaning. Uh, both of them are really important in addressing the existence of a cup of tea. So some, some scientists today would say that the intent of the person who wants to make a cup of tea is irrelevant because the mechanism can actually explain it away. 
Uh, however, I think this brings up a bigger, more fundamental point, that the world can really be split into those who see why as a relevant question and those who do not, or a valid question, and those who do not. Now, science cannot give us the complete picture of the existence of the cup of tea. It never will be able to. We have to be careful here because I'm really not, I'm not advocating that we invoke God to explain certain aspects of science that are not yet understood, um, such as the Big Bang or dark matter, for example. Um, this, this would be known as the God of the Gaps theory, and it's a very tenuous position to be in, because as these gaps shrink, which they inevitably will do, so also will our, our view of God. So let me give you an example of how, how this might happen. We're currently living um, under the reality that we are alone in the universe, okay? We have, no one's found any evidence, unless they're not revealing it, that there are, are aliens out there, there's extraterrestrial life. This past week, uh, week I met with a, a geologist from Caltech, uh, who is a member of the National Academy of Sciences, and uh, he is also a project scientist on NASA's Curiosity rover mission. And this is really cool. I'm not sure if you've been keeping up to date. It's been all over the media. Um, but the, this, the mission has been an, a, a great success. So it launched back uh, late 2012, I believe, from Florida. And it flew, the rocket flew 300 million miles. And NASA were able to land the rocket on the Martian surface in Gale Crater uh, to within a few meters of the precision where they wanted to land it. It's absolutely unbelievable. And, and since its inception... Uh, the mission has found incontrovertible evidence for water, the past existence of water on Mars. Now, this isn't new, but it's, what they found is very, very strong evidence for water, the past existence of water on Mars. And, of course, water is a prerequisite for life. So this, this guy was telling me that uh, NASA now intends to focus on the next rover missions on actually bringing rock, rock back from Mars to Earth. And let me share with you the, the plans they have. It's absolutely awesome. It's going to be three missions. So the next mission is going to be in 2020. They're going to launch a, rock up, uh, a, a rocket up, and they're going to uh, land another rover, which is roughly the size of a cougar. And they're going to go around, and they're going to go and drill about 500 grams worth of rock, okay, and place it in a me uh, metal box. That'll be that mission done. On to the next one. So this mission will go up, land another rover, and they'll actually strap rockets to the side of the box, fire it out of the Martian atmosphere into orbit around Mars. That'll be that mission done. And then the third mission will go up and actually capture this flying box of rocks and, and direct it back towards Earth. It, it's unbelievable. <laughs> now, they're, they're aiming to shoot this box of samples into the Utah desert. Um, and I asked him, well, you know, how are you going to land this thing? And he was saying that uh, the, the samples are going to be so precious, these will be the first extraterrestrial or Martian samples, besides meteorites. Uh, he was saying that actually we're not going to bother with things like parachutes for fear of uh, failure of these things. We're just going to engineer the, the box so that it can withstand impact into the Earth. And he was saying that the, the box is going to decelerate roughly at 2,000 Gs. So that's 2,000 times the, uh, the force of gravity. It's unbelievable. And he started talking about all sorts of cool things, such as... Uh, you know, the, the possible risk of uh, contamination of the Earth's atmosphere by Martian spores and things like that. All War of the Worlds type stuff. Anyway, back, back to my original point, which is, 
given the fact that they have found incontrovertible evidence for water on the Martian surface, and water is a uh, prerequisite for life, um, it is plausible, I'm not saying it's going to happen, it's also plausible it won't, but it's plausible that this current mission, or a future mission, could actually find existence for life on Mars. And have you thought about what that might do to your, your view of God? Would it make him larger or would it make him smaller? It's worth pondering. I'm not just saying that science uh, hasn't answered everything, but rather science doesn't have the inherent ability to answer everything that matters, namely matters of faith. So science addresses mechanism and not meaning. Science will eventually answer lingering questions. We may someday understand where in the brain religious thoughts are generated, for example, or what happened in the picoseconds before the Big Bang, uh, or dark matter, as I mentioned. But even with the complete understanding of how the universe operates, we still have questions of faith. Why are we here? Why do we suffer? It doesn't matter how I live my life. So if we believe that science can see all, then we're always going to be limited by what we can measure. And though this is expanding all the time, it cannot approach and never will be able to approach the why questions. Science does not see all, but rather it gives us a profound mechanistic explanation of mechanistic truth, the mechanism and not the meaning. Truth is more complex than science alone. Uh, which brings us to, to the questions of faith. So that's science sees all. So the second assumption I want to challenge is, uh, is faith really blind? To many, the word faith will conjure up uh, images of blind belief, uh, appearing to unlikely propositions uh, presented for unquestioning acceptance uh, from an unquestionable authority. Take Dawkins once more. Faith is blind trust in the absence of evidence, even in the teeth of evidence. And I'm against religion because it teaches us to be satisfied with not understanding the world. So according to views like this, Christianity it represents a retreat from evidence-based pursuit for truth. Um, do we as Christians believe or accept this definition of faith? And if you're a skeptic looking in at the Christian faith, is this how you perceive religious uh, faith? This, con- this common misconception of faith uh, forms a stumbling block for many inquirers and many scientists who view even engaging in the discourse between science and faith essentially as the same as committing uh, intellectual suicide. Uh, you must leave your uh, brain at the door of the church, is a, a quote I've heard. So let me present what I view as a more considered and more accurate view and uh, definition of the the Christian faith. This comes from an English theologian, W.H. Griffith Thomas. Uh, Faith affects the whole of man's nature. It commences with the conviction of the mind based on adequate evidence. It continues in the confidence of the heart or emotions based on conviction And it is crowned in the consent of the will, by means of which the conviction and confidence are expressed in conduct. Now, I know know it's a little bit wordy, but the key point to notice here is that faith starts with the conviction of the mind based on adequate evidence. So I'm not saying that people can come to faith purely on the basis of logical reasoning alone. Clearly, clearly not. Uh, But it is so important in today's 
age of skepticism to be able to present and understand the evidence for why we uh, believe we do, whilst acknowledging the heart component of it, the necessity of the rejuvenation of the heart. So the first thing to say about faith is that it's not restricted to followers of organized religion. All worldviews, and therefore all people, have faith in something, be it atheism, Christianity, or the view that science sees all. Your worldview, in essence, is a faith statement, religious or not. So put another way, it actually takes faith not to believe in Christianity. So in light of this, we need to see skepticism about faith and objections to Christianity in the same light and subject them to the same scrutiny we subject the Christian's faith to, or it is subjected to. So how do we refute the idea that faith is blind and what makes Christianity any more credible than competing uh, worldviews and faith statements? So I'm, I'm not going to give a full scope of the historicity of the, uh, the Bible here or the biblical evidence, but it is very robust. And if you're here inquiry, I'd really encourage you to get involved in one of the GCs, the gospel communities here at Providence. Uh, this is a great environment. We discuss questions like this all the time. Um, It's important to say that Christianity cannot be proven any more than it can be disproven, as opposed to a scientific hypothesis by its very nature is testable. Questions of faith are not testable in that same nature. Um, However, there are aspects of the Christian faith that profoundly mesh uh, with what we see in the world, both our understanding of creation and our human experiences. Christianity provides us with a coherent picture of the purpose and the current state of the world. It tells us that God created the earth, and this makes sense of the awe we experience in creation. The Christian faith tells us we're created to enjoy God and glorify him forever. And this meshes with our sense of old fulfillment with things as they are in the world, and our sense of meaning. The Christian faith tells us that man has rebelled against God in a search for that meaning in lesser demigods including self, which makes sense of the human heart and evil and our sense of right and wrong. It tells us that God's anger with our rebellion is satisfied through his son, Jesus, who takes the punishment for our rebellion through his death on the cross. And this makes sense of our feeling that humans aren't just insignificant specks in the, uh, in the universe, but in fact we are parts of God's eternal plan. Finally, it tells us that in the end, all things will be made right when Jesus returns. And this makes intimate sense of the feeling that there must be more to life uh, than just life here on earth. So this is a, the Christian story, the faith, is a marvelous story. Yes, there's mystery in it, uh, but the gospel truths intersect with our experience of life on earth and with our desires and longings. So despite the fact that some see science and um, the Christian faith as a war, I hope I've at least touched on why uh, they shouldn't be and that the fact that they seek to answer very different questions in their nature. Models for the interaction of science and faith have been subject of centuries of study by many people much smarter than myself. But from a personal point of view, I relate closest uh, on the basis of my work and my faith Uh, to the model that states that science and Christianity do interact, correcting and enhancing one another. So in light of this and going forward, I think it's really important to ask, how can we encourage this complementary view of science and faith? Uh, Firstly, we need to recognize that we can see the joy and value in understanding the works of the Lord in creation. 
We hear in Psalm 111, verse 2, at the so-called scientist verse, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. So we can appreciate and thank God for creating an orderly, consistent universe where it's not only possible to do science, but also use the findings we get from science to help and serve others. So from a personal perspective, I see deep beauty in the work of our creator, in in the, the fabric of the cosmos. So not only in creating such a profoundly interesting environment, but for gifting us the ability and the motivation to study it. This synergy, I find it absolutely mind-blowing. Secondly, in Romans at 1.20, Paul says that we can understand the nature of God through creation. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So under the authority of God's word, we can see that science, if it's it's properly and correctly used, it actually reveals the character of God. Uh, This means that the more we grow in our understanding of science, the more we are to grow in our understanding of God and the creator. So if our worship of God is to be meaningful and authentic, it has to embrace all of our endeavors, including those from science. So therefore, in its proper use, science becomes an instrument for worship. Uh, We should promote this intellectual uh, discipleship and embrace a questing spirit rather than keeping science at at, at arm's length and putting God into science's gaps. Thirdly, we can push back against the fear that Christians are on a slippery slope if we embrace, embrace scientific theories that seem to be in apparent tension with certain aspects of biblical truth. What knowledge are we to fear if all knowledge derives, if all knowledge of creation derives from God? The answer, of course, is that no knowledge can threaten the sovereignty of God. Science is the systematic search for mechanistic truth. And as Christians, we believe that all truth comes from God. Uh, This means that all we can learn about creation is what the creator wants us to learn. uh, and what he wants us to know. Galileo expressed this as he was facing persecution over heliocentrism. I do not feel obliged to believe that the same God who has endowed us with sense, reason, and intellect has intended us to forego their use. So both science and Christianity are ultimately pursuits of truth, and as we've just seen, truth meshes with truth. God's word and God's world uh, go together in harmony. Psalm 95 uh, puts it this way. The Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his for he made it and his hands form the dry land. Finally, I'm only just going to get to briefly touch on this. There's much more that can be said in it. But science can provide insight into a vast array of problems affecting society at the moment. Uh, disease, environmental protection, the, the list could go on and on. So combining our, our biblical mandate for compassion, for love, with the insight that science can give us, uh, is, it will be immensely effective in equipping the church for uh, future leadership. If you're in, here inquiring into the Christian faith, I really hope that you can begin to see that it requires a step of faith to link science with atheism. 
Science addresses the mechanism and not the meaning. Uh, it addresses the how and not the why. And to, to believers, I want to issue a clarion call to engage with science uh, and to praise God for its unique insight and to not be suspicious of the knowledge it offers us. As part of our discipleship and stewardship, we could each try and make an effort to sort of stay abreast of uh, scientific developments in a certain field or technology that we're interested in. I'm not saying we all have to be scientists. Uh, praise the Lord, we're not, because nothing would ever get done. But. Uh, but we could gain a lot from engaging with science as opposed to keeping it at arm's length and using it as an, an inst- or seeing it as an instrument of worship. I'd be really happy to chat with anyone who's interested in this sort of stuff. Um, do feel free to catch me later or email me. And I'd like to plug two books that I've found extremely helpful when thinking about these sorts of things. They're both written by Francis Collins. You may have heard of him. He's probably the um, highest profile uh, scientist who has an active faith in America. He used to be head of the Human Genome Project. He's currently director of the National Institutes of Health. And he writes fantastically. Um, So the first one is The Language of God, which presents the evidence for belief in Christianity from a scientist's perspective. Um, And the second one is The Language of Science and Faith, which is a set of um, common questions and answers to those questions, such as age of the earth, evolution. Really well written. So to end with, um, tomorrow night heralds the appearance of the sky's brightest star, Sirius. So Sirius should be uh, visible to us, to the south, southeast of uh, towns in the northern hemisphere. And it should be visible between the hours of midnight and about seven in the morning. So if you're up late or up early, you might get a glimpse of it. And a cool thing about Sirius is it's it's a binary star, so it's actually two. Although we'll just see one uh, bit of light, it's actually made of two stars. And it's it's 8.6 light years away, so one light year is six trillion miles It's a long way away. Uh, But the cool thing is Sirius is an enormous power output. It's 25 times more powerful than the sun, which leads to its surface temperatures being 17,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It puts Austin Summers into a bit of uh, context. (laughs) But, yeah, however, if if you do get to see Sirius, maybe you could ponder these facts in light of the psalmist of um, Psalm 111, verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Uh, Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.